Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And let me just comment about melting pot. See, this whole concept of melting pot, if we were to all melt together and people were not to be aware of skin color, in other words, it's just something they don't pay any more attention to skin color than they pay the shoe size, guess what would happen? White people would disappear because of their genetic recessive state. So this whole thing about melting pot, if you really look at it clearly, scientifically, and logically, if everybody blended together, white would disappear. And that is what President Obama represents just looking at him. When white people look at him, consciously and or subconsciously, they see white genetic annihilation. And I maintain that accounts for the level of anger and hatred that is directed towards him. And I will even say that the um, Speaker of the House, John Boehner, that some of his hostility and anger, the tone that he directs at President Obama, is because he's almost as dark as President Obama. And he's dark and has that skin color because there's some black genetic material in his heritage. That color is not a tan. And I don't think that he respects himself because he has that coloration. He said that there were 11 children in his family and that four of them took their skin, their color after their mother. Well, what does that mean? See, he comes from Ohio, and that part of the country is where a lot of the children of slave masters and black women were sent into Ohio. And I would say until proven otherwise, his mother may in, well indeed be a mixed-race person, but passing for white. But the genetic base was still there. See, I would like him to address how is it that four of his siblings have their mother's color, and what does that mean? And does that self-hatred, just like Elliot Rogers, hated himself? And sometimes the way that John Boehner speaks to and addresses the president, I have to look at it and say, this man seems to hate himself because he's almost as dark as the president. The Grandcester, context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of Racism. Uh, today's date, thir- uh, Tuesday. Why does I think Thursday? Tuesday, uh, November the 16th, 2021. So I have been told uh, we should be here on Thursday for the book club uh, reading. More important 
than watching television. I think that'll come up a few times in the broadcast today. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, uh, the Grandcester, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing mentioned her name a lot this month, I feel like. Um, but that was her 2014 visit. Seven years, more than seven years. Uh, summertime, where she was talking about then uh, Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Uh, and his connections to Ohio and even his skin complexion. And before he retired, there were a number of times where there were comments about his skin complexion. She talked about the area of Ohio. I thought all of that was super relevant for our guest for today's broadcast. Our discussion today, reading, more important. Uh, there was one of our investors shared the link for the book white like her uh, and it was a review i flipped to it check it out i'll generally check out any books folks send me uh, i check it out and uh it's all this information uh about a white woman uh who does some research on her family uh find some information from the census records where it's like hmm curious marking what does this mean does a little asking questions always you know support that and she finds out well wow it seems like the census is saying that my mom's family is is coming up colored like what's going on so she goes to talk to her mom about it and her mom is secretive about it so she goes to do all of this research uh to find out the racial classification uh, of her ancestors we've talked for many years on this program about the importance uh, of racial classifications uh, in fact I think in, in her book I don't know if this was her point in writing we can ask uh, but it reveals quite a bit uh, about what it means to be white essentially that's passing when they say passing we can ask her to make sure as well but the term passing I've concluded that means you are accepted as a white person uh, what does that mean what is one required to do very interesting things to think about uh, again Dr. Welsing keep that in mind as well uh, but such a hoot uh, this book the author of the book White Like Her she was on the Genealogy Roadshow and she talks about that whole experience and how that helped her to find even more uh, of her family members and I guess deepen uh, further her understanding of racism white supremacy uh, such a hoot to have her on the program we'll discuss the book maybe get some questions from listeners uh, pleasure to have her on the program joining us live uh, Miss Gail Lukasik uh, Miss Lukasik uh, should I get the right one Miss Lukasik are you with us ma'am I am thank you for inviting me to be on the program awesome thank you for being flexible I was trying to ring Miss Lukasik for the program and it was blocking me on the phone like we don't recognize your caller ID get out of here I was like dang what is going on oh, like, I don't understand that but <laughs> I don't know what happened much obliged thank you technology sometimes it's uh, for you sometimes no uh, but <laughs> anything that you would like to share uh, about who you are the work that you do Miss uh, Lukasik before we get started well um Actually, I started out my writing career as a mystery author, and I've written four mysteries, and um, White Like Her is my first nonfiction book. It's a memoir and also a social history, as you so well put already, um, looking at um, 
my family, my family discovery on my mother's side of the family. Um, I didn't know about um, her genealogy, uh, her black heritage, um, and that was um, a surprise. It was interesting. And uh, what I ended up doing with that is, in the book, I trace her side of the family all the way back to colonial Louisiana, and I look at racial designations, um, using my family as an example of what was going on at a certain time in history. Right on, right on. We'll read uh, some snippets from the book and kind of get your thoughts and what what does that help us understand about racism, white supremacy? Um, this is interesting because uh, we asked this question of all of our, our guests who come on the program, but uh, in your case, it'll have to be a little different. Uh, but uh, the question, uh, so have you ever functioned or been accepted as a white woman? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I have, um, yes, I've been a white woman and functioned as a white woman um, my entire life until I made this discovery, which, of course, made me rethink my identity. So I had to really think about that, and it, it, I went through quite a transformation. But why would, you know, I look visually white. My mother told me that's what we were, and I accepted that. And it wasn't until I made um, this discovery while searching through the 1900 Louisiana census records, I, my reason for going through those, and this is, I have to go back a bit, this is 1995, so we know there's no Ancestry.com. I can't go, you know, and look uh, family tree members up through Ancestry.com. And it was actually even... In 1995, there wasn't a lot of access to the Internet, so I had to go to a family history center and look through microfilm. And when I, um, my grandfather's name, by the way, is Azima Frederick, which is a very unusual first name. And when I found him and his family in, uh, the, on the 1900 Louisiana census records, um, I was quite surprised by what I discovered after all of their names was the letter B. And when I went to the head of that column to see what that was for, it said race. So I was like, I sat there for a moment, and I thought, wait a minute, does that mean black? So I had a little time left, I put in the 1930 census and looked up the family again, only this time they're all designated with a W, which I'm assuming is for white. So um, I thought, okay, I'm really confused. So went, there was a woman who was helping everyone at the center with the microfilm. So I went up to her and I said, I just need to understand this. I found my family. They're designated race with a B. Does that mean black? And she she got very strange. Um, she said, oh, yes, that is for black. And then she launched into this whole, I think she thought she was being humorous, but it wasn't humorous to me about a certain type of candy. And I don't know if you've heard of this candy. I haven't. But um, the first word begins with an N, and that N word, and then baby. And she kept talking about it jokingly, and I'm just kind of looking at her stunned, not knowing what's going on. 
And then she concludes by saying, oh, you must be that woman with all the slaves in your family. So I just got out of there pretty quickly. I had no idea what had happened. Wow. Uh, I'm just making sure I heard that correctly. So nigger babies, and this is a form of candy, you said? Did I hear that correctly? That's what she said. Yeah, that's what she said to me. I had never heard about this. Um, I didn't know what was going on. It just, it seemed, the whole thing was so bizarre, Um, Mm. this whole occurrence. And, you know, I'm I'm in my... um, I'm 49 years old, so I'm a 49-year-old woman who thought she was a white woman. And that's what I've been told. So I had no idea what had happened. I didn't know what was going on. Um, now, my mom, you know, I grew up in Ohio. So my mom at that time, of course, is in Ohio. I live in Illinois. And I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, these are census records. They make mistakes. Who knows what's going on? Maybe my mother doesn't even know about it. So what I decided to do Um, I thought, well, you know, I need to get a copy of my mother's birth certificate. And so I wrote to the state of Louisiana as if I was my mother, and I told the state I lost my birth certificate. And could they send me a copy? Because, you know, I want to follow this research all the way through to figure out what's going on. So they sent me back her birth certificate, and in parentheses, on her birth certificate were three letters for race. And, and they were COL, which I'm thinking is for color. Now, my mother was born in 1921. So I thought, okay, I have this information, but I'm going to follow this all the way through, and, and I want to write to the state again. I want them to tell me what COL means in their interpretation, how they're designating my mother. So they did write me back, and I got a very official-looking letter with the state seal on it and everything. And they said, um, COL stands for a person of color, and in most cases it refers to a person of African descent. And so I had what I considered proof of my mother's um, racial identity. So what I did then... um, I wanted. I didn't want to have this conversation on, on the telephone. My mom is a very clever, wily woman, and I, I, I wanted to be sitting in a room with her when I presented my, you know, what I had done, my information. Unfortunately, what happened um, right about this time, my father became very ill, and uh, he had a protracted illness. So I waited till after he passed, and. Um, then I invited my mother to come visit me in Illinois, and that's when I, you know, confronted her with what I knew. And um, I started out with her birth certificate, and she said to me, um, I don't know what birth certificate you have, but mine says I'm white. So I thought, okay, now wait a minute. I, You know, I wasn't going to let her get out of this that easily. So I, I said, Mom, look, I have other things I can show you. I have a letter from the state. I have, you know, the census records. Um, um, I don't think that's, you're you're telling me the right thing here. So she got very, very quiet. She didn't say anything for a while. Then she looked at me and she said, you can never tell anyone about this until after I die. 
I tried to talk her out of it. I did not understand where she was coming from totally. I, you know, I wasn't raised that way. I was raised to be accepting of all races, ethnicities, religions, everything. So I didn't understand what was happening. And I tried to talk her out of it, and she said, no, you have to promise me. So I did. I I promised her. And um, she lived a long life. Um, she lived to 92, so I kept that secret for 17 years. And the only people I told, I told my husband, I told my children, they felt like they had a right to know um, their heritage. And then um, I told two good friends, and then that was it. And... Um, yeah, that's what happened. All of that relating back to how she functions as a white woman, all of that and finding out this information. I want to try and uh, get as many questions in from listeners and different parts of the book as we can, the time that we have you. So we'll try and uh, okay. get through things as quickly as possible. Let's see. The, sure. One of the first questions we ask all of our listeners, and so much of this, we've already mentioned racism uh, <clears throat> on this program. I use the term with the terms racism and white supremacy as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Uh, and as an author, uh, do you think that definition is accurate? Well, I hope I, I, I hope I'm understanding you correctly. So, and tell me if I'm not, okay? Because I want to understand what you're saying. So you're saying that if a person classifies themselves as white, the flip side of that or the or, or what goes along with that is sub, subjugating those who are not they think of not as white is that right am i doing am i saying that right uh i'll just i'll give the definition again so you can hear it i'll make sure i do it slow and you can just tell yeah, me yeah i don't that's know that right. i'm understanding it yeah okay i'll give it again slow uh so again it is racism white supremacy a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I'm actually writing it down. Um, I think there are definitely people like that. Um, but I'm, I guess, I mean, I definitely, yes, I, that would be racism for sure, yeah. Um, I, I see racism that way, and white supremacy is that, is that way, is, if that's what you're saying. Okay. And, uh, and if you don't agree or if something doesn't make sense, just let us know because there might be parts where yeah. you have a different opinion. That's totally fine. 
share your thoughts. We're all, you know, striving to be adults. So that is totally fine. No, no, Don't I'm you? trying to. Uh, yeah, no, I want, I want to understand. I mean, if someone is thinks of themselves as Caucasian, that doesn't mean they're racist, does it? Well, well, one, I didn't use the term uh, Caucasian. I know. You, you said white, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a definition of what you wrote this whole book and racism is used in the book? Do you have a, a different definition of racism, white supremacy? I'm, well, the way I look at racism is that you're subjugating um, a certain, you know, minority or it could be, could be even gender, you know, you could... Um, subjugating them and thinking of them as lesser than you and that's not right so um, I guess that's how and and yeah you would want to yeah put them down subjugate them okay just pointing this out for non-white listeners see those are two very different definitions she even said mistreating whether it's gender and we talked about that before that's why getting definition very important even if they have a different definition or they don't agree very important so many times people hop into the discussions of white supremacy racism with no definition or people have very different definitions and that doesn't get you know brought up immediately that's totally fine you just want to know where people how people think about this concept um your book uh white like her uh how did you arrive at that title well, I, it's it's meant to be ironic. You know, my mother wasn't white, and um, but yet, in order for her to um, take on, you know, to pass, she fashioned her lifestyle in a way, or her way of I don't I don't know how to describe it. Um, to pass, she was acting as white. In her mind, I want to make that clear. Hmm. Okay. Reminded me of uh, Black Like Me, the book that came out, or I guess book and movie that came out in the 60s as well, where a white man uh, went to the South. John Howard Griffin went to the South, and I guess he darkened his skin with some sort of chemical or whatever, and pretended to be a black person and wrote a book about it, a movie about it. Some of our listeners are familiar with one or both. Um, okay. So that's, that's the title irony. Um, okay. And was there a specific problem that you were attempting to solve with writing white like her? And if so, what problem or problems were you trying to solve with this book? Um, I didn't approach the book that way. I'm I'm not um, a historian. I'm I'm a storyteller. I just wanted to tell my mother's story, um, and as I told it and traced the family back, I wanted to show, um, in terms of how they were treated, in terms of race and racial designations, what was going on in this country and the history of this country in terms of race. That was that was the goal and to tell the story I'm a storyteller and my understanding and you can correct me if I'm wrong uh, Kenyatta Berry who was the 
genealogist who told our story and wrote the foreword to the book told me that um, that stories of passing aren't told a lot, and that's what she told me. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, I have to think about that for a minute. Is Kenyatta Berry? She's a non-white female. She's a what? A non-white female. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'll have to think about that for a little bit. I may put a pin in that one. Um, Okay. So, not trying to solve a problem. You're an author. You already shared uh, shared with us uh, mystery novels, fiction, fictional uh, novels, and such. So, didn't have a problem solving approach with this book. Did you have like a target audience for white like her? Not when I was. You know, I, I guess you and I think differently about this. What we're talking about because. I'm, yes, I'm a fiction writer. I started my writing career as a poet. I turned to fiction. And I just, this event happened to me. This, And I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to tell my mother's story. I felt that she felt she could not tell it herself. So it was entrusted to me to tell. Right on, right on. That's why I think it's important. As her ask- daughter. Hmm. Yeah, I'm her daughter, and I, I kept her secret, and then I was, you know, released from it once she passed, and then, you know, um, just events happened, serendipitous events happened that allowed me to tell the story. I see. I see. That's why I think it's important to ask those type of questions because people, you know, come to projects with different intentions, different motivations, different, you know, just ways of thinking uh, about what's motivating them to do this. So right on. Uh, Again, context of white supremacy. Our guest, uh, Mrs. Gail Lukasik, author of White Like Her. Uh, Let's see. Get in a few more questions. I'll check, see if listeners have questions as well. Uh, You write this is in chapter 12 uh, of the book uh, you talk about some of your concerns we'll say uh, in going public with all this on the road show as well as you know writing a book and, and talking about it as an author I'm, eas- I'm easily found through my website will I be accused of betraying my mother of betraying the white race by coming out with the truth of my racial heritage will blacks see me as disingenuous was my mother right in keeping her secret? Am I a disloyal daughter after all? What concerns, I guess, did you have about black people seeing you as being disingenuous? Um, I was concerned that black, black people would think I was trying to claim an identity that I had no right to claim. Um, let's come on. I've enjoyed white privilege my whole life. I had no intention to to claim something that isn't, you know, who I am or what I'm, what my life has been. So I didn't want um, black people to think I was trying to do something like that. That would be, I, I had no intention to do that. Look, I was after, you know, I was after a truth for myself. I was after trying to figure out what my identity was and where does that how do I fit in? You know, that's what I was trying to do. 
and um, I think I'm pretty honest in the book. I don't, I don't pretend to be anything I'm not, and you know, I guess everyone has an opinion. They can judge me how they want. I just was telling a story, and that was my story, and that was my struggle to figure it out. And you know, I don't know what else to say about it. Right on. Okay. And then uh, the sentence uh, before that, you said you were concerned also about white people saying, hey, you are betraying the white race by coming out with all this information. What did you mean by that? I, I was just questioning everything. I was questioning, you know, when you discover that you're mixed race, you have to think about all of that. And I did have an, an instance where um, someone who I had considered a friend, um, a white woman, you know, she made a comment when she found out about my heritage. And it was an offhand, it was at a cocktail party, it was an offhanded comment, but it was hurtful. And I thought, What was the okay, comment? Because I think you talk about this in the book. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I, I don't remember exactly what I said. We were at a party, and I was talking about working hard on a book, and I said, you know, I'm I'm really cracking the whip on this book. And she looked at me and she says, well, you should be used to that. And I went, whoa, okay. <laughs> that was uncalled for. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think she thought she was funny. Lots of those I told folks racist jokes. We talk about that on the on the program all the time. Uh, oh my goodness! Let me. In fact, I highlighted. Let me share the portion that I highlighted. So, for full context, people will have. So you write when a friend asks me how it's going, I reply without thinking. You know, cracking the whip. Then I make a whip-like yeah. sound. My friend responds yeah. sharply. You should be used to that. Her attempt at yeah. humor falls flat, at least with me. Our other friends. Yeah gazes off into the night yard as if the remark came from someone out there. I let it go with a warning about her own suspect ancestor she's been researching. We've all had yeah. too much to drink. Sobriety would be best. We say that all the time on the program. Each nursing our yeah. own private sorrows. What? Oh, this is what I highlighted. What stings is how vulnerable I feel as if I've done something I should be ashamed of that this is yeah. my fault for having the temerity to reveal my African heritage which makes me fair game for racist comments. No one would ever know of my African heritage if I didn't reveal it. All three of us are as pale white as the moon. It's as if my mother is there whispering to me see this is why I didn't tell anyone this is what happens. Even friends see you differently. Yeah. That yeah. was the Thank one I highlighted. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. I have forgotten all of that. Um, yeah. Thank you for reading that. That brings it all back. Yeah. That was pretty upsetting. Fair game for racist comments. Yeah. That's how it felt. I'll actually, I'll take this one. It's because I've said this for years when we talk about racist jokes, and that's how I think about this, a racist joke. Um, 
you know, other folks, even you, if you, you know, other people think differently, this is a racist joke. Uh, and I said, there are tons of these. You go back to the uh, God lugging woman who was helping you go through the census records at first, like, oh, this be you're the one with the slaves in the family. Uh, how she's yeah. talking about, uh, oh, well, everyone has a nigger in the woodpile. That's another one I think of as right. a racist joke. Right. That's uh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you give a little bit about that exchange as well? With with the the woman at the center? Yes, ma'am. The God lugging <laughs> bigot. That was her. Yeah, that I spoke of earlier. Yeah, that was her with the you know the end babies and um, the the whole thing. It, you know it. It's like you you think. Okay, I don't even know how to explain, it. and I I feel like I'm not doing a good job. Tell me if I'm not um, explaining this um, this reaction. Um, to that woman, I just I I'm trying to take in what I've just discovered, you know, in the census records, trying to figure out, feeling like why didn't my mother tell me? Why, you know, she could have told me. I don't understand why she didn't. That that felt you know hurtful to me, that she wouldn't tell me. But you know, of course, once I took it all in and understood it all, I did understand why she didn't tell me. Um, but yeah, it's a, it felt like an assault. I've said for years, and I've talked. We talked to other white guests about this. We had a listener. He was saying, "Gus, did you find that book with the racist jokes?" Like, nope, didn't find it. Uh, but I've said for years, one racist jokes. That's one of the few times when white people who practice racism, white supremacy, when they are being honest, so frequently. In discussions of racism, white people are not honest, particularly when they're talking to non-white people. Racist jokes, that's one of the few times, 100 proof, like no varnish, like let's keep it real for real uh, with racist jokes. And then two, when white people make these racist jokes, there is an assumption if you are classified and and accepted as white, you are co-signing you think this is funny or you certainly don't have yeah. a problem it took the question out <laughs> just no can you speak? you're right yeah that's absolutely right um the, the, like i used to talk about the woman at the cocktail party i i totally saw her that you're right she, that what she said to me i saw who she was in that moment and i didn't know that about her that's what's so shocking um and we had been friends for years and years and it just like whoa okay i can see who you are now um i mean i wasn't that surprised with the woman at the family history center because i didn't know that woman from adam i didn't know who she was um so but but it was a little off-putting at first because like well you don't know me either so why are you saying this are you you're assuming something about me that isn't true, meaning that I would go along with this joke and that I'm probably, you know, horrified over my discovery, and that wasn't true at all. And I think that was her assumption about my reaction. What does it mean to be white? Lots of those types of examples in this book where they make it specific uh, even going all the way back to my definition lots of those type of examples I think in this book uh, another one that I think is important I don't know how many people when they speak to you uh, can you tell our listeners uh, about the white woman 
flagger Naomi Drake? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's been a while since I <laughs> wrote the book. And, yeah, she uh, she was a flagger, yeah, in, in uh, Louisiana. That was her job, was to flag anyone she thought might be trying to pass. And she would track you down. She could find, you know, we're talking about the one-drop rule. I know all the listeners know about the one-drop rule. And that's what she was looking for. And if she found that, you would be designated as black. And um, and that went on for quite a while. Um, and then Louisiana um, decided that the one-drop rule might be a little bit too harsh. Um, so they, I think this was in the 1970s, um, they came up with a mathematical formula to determine um, what what constituted whether you were black or, or not. And it was, um, I, I think it was one-third. If you were one-third African heritage, that made you black. So there were these ridiculous, unbelievable designations. And um, I'm looking at my notes here. Give me a second. I want to give it to you correctly so I don't mislead here. Um, okay, the dates were... 1970 to 1983, they used a math. I'm sorry, it's 132nd African heritage would determine what's, and she was part, they were all part of that flagging. And that's how um, I'm sure what happened to my mother's family. And, you know, I, I know my DNA. I had my DNA done twice, so I'm not very good at math. So I had my husband, uh, because I was alive in 1970, and I said, tell me if I would have been designated black. And he said, you would have been, based on your DNA. Context of white supremacy. Uh, all of that is so important. Number one, the arbitrariness. Like, I was waiting when you were going to give the figure, and she said, you know, I'm being trying to be exact here. I'm getting my notes. Uh, and I was waiting. At first, when she said it was one-third, I was totally ready to accept that because, I mean, it's arbitrary, yeah. like, you know, wherever we set this yeah. line at. So if it's one third, one thirty second, one fifty hundred, like whatever, we're just going to throw a dart on the wall right. and gonna, pick a number. Do it. Yeah. You know, yeah, but the pit, what I think is important is the person doing the picking, Naomi Drake, I suspect she's classified as white. Uh, I would be stunned if you told me she is a black female uh, who is doing all of this. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean right. in terms of yeah. white supremacy, racism. And she probably doesn't make a million dollars for that job. But that is no. hugely important in yeah. terms of I just sit here with this little job and use aggressively anything that looks yep. suspicious, something that is marked a little funny on your birth certificate or anything is scratched out like uh your white credentials are colored, bam, and that and we've even talked about that white by law where people have went to the Supreme Court. Hey, I'm really a white person. No, you're not because we say you're not, and exactly. that's that. You know, super important. Yeah. Uh, and no, I, it, you gonna add something? Go, Sorry. Yeah. No, that's fine. I was just. I mean, I was gonna just add a little historical note, which you probably already knew know about, but. What ushered in this one-drop rule was the 1924 Virginia state law, 
which was uh, titled The Act to Preserve Racial Integrity. And that um, was an effort to preserve, and I'm putting this in quotes, the purity of the white race. That's what enshrined the one-drop rule. And when I give my talks, I always like to quote one of the eugenicists at the time who is defending this and said uh, the reason being many thousands of white Negroes were quietly and persistently passing over the line, meaning the color line. That is a regular refrain, uh, concerns about being fooled about who is an authentic white person, whatever that means. Yep. Um, there was one I wanted to ask because you said before when you were giving your response to black people, perhaps thinking that you're being disingenuous in writing this book. Uh, and you said, Hey, I've, you know, accrued benefit from white privilege throughout my life. I'm not trying to pass myself off as a black person. Um, and I just wanted to ask if you think it's accurate, racism, white supremacy, I say that is a power dynamic worldwide uh, where individuals, the white collective, they have more power than the individuals they say are not white, all areas of people activity. Do you think that's accurate? You're saying that they think that they have more power is that what you're saying no i'm saying looking at at evidence uh and logic uh in the system of white supremacy racism that white people collectively on the planet have more power than individuals that they classify as not white is that accurate well i think they think that yeah is it true and they and they well it looks that way to me you know they i guess they do oh okay I don't I don't feel particularly powerful but yeah of course they do. Okay. Uh if that's the case uh would it be accurate to say that you as a white woman have had lived your life and had access to white power? I'm sure absolutely. I just point that out for our non-white listeners. It's my opinion one of the ways that white supremacy racism is practiced is by minimizing and obfuscating uh, the way that white people go about the business of white supremacy racism and they'll use words that are not it's like a lot of pussyfooting and not really being accurate about things white privilege is, is not really being as accurate as we could white power starts to make things clear if we're talking about a power dynamic between people Gail Lukasik yes I have access to white power because I'm a white sure. woman now we're making things as opposed to white privilege and the pussyfooting um one whew, no pussyfooting here uh on i can't i have the e-copy so i can't really get out the pages uh but this is chapter 25 marta you write after I'm dolphin get over there okay we'll give her a moment to flip maybe any other listeners yeah. if you have a copy of the book take your yeah. time okay yep i'm there Gotcha. After Dauphin emancipated Marta, she continued to live with him and bore him seven more children. As a free woman of color who'd been a slave, what options were open to her, regardless of whether their initial sexual encounter was forced or not forced? It was raped. See, that's what I mean. That is no pussyfooting. Make it plain. After all, Marta yep. was his property. Pedro had exactly. all the power. She gave her mm -hmm. consent to his desires. 
unquestionably her consent was weighted on his side some historians suggest that certain enslaved women used their sexual powers to manipulate their white masters I find that viewpoint difficult to understand having been born into slavery as property of the dolphin family Marta learned early that she was subject in all things to their will if you want to put this in context and then give specific focus because in my experience it's very rare to talk to a white person male or female who is that definitive like I'm not trying to say this is a romance and all that in fact it's irrelevant how all of this started slave white man rape yep that's what it was and I'm going to tell you when I um, got to Marta in my research and I started going through the documents I work with a genealogist Judy Riffle and she's in Louisiana and she gave me a lot of information about Marta. When I read the manumission reason, I was furious. I was beside myself. Um, And I'll read it. Um, This is what was given the reason she was uh, uh, freed. With much love and affection and services of the mother, no prices at all, I wanted, if he would have been in front of me, I would have killed him. I was so angry. Um, You know, it, yeah, that's why I was so forthright with this, and that's how I felt. It made me angry. That's not, and I think I read somewhere that um, that's why I put that in there. Um, there was some historian or researcher put in there that um, you know a lot of times these women they were very manipulative, and I was like, give me a break. Are you kidding? How can you even say that? What choice did this woman have? I don't know, it just infuriated me. It's very common, everything that, uh, Ms. Lukasik, everything that she just shared, it's super common. Even, I would, unfortunately, I mean, white people are most to blame for this, but unfortunately, I even hear a lot of non-white people talk this way about these arrangements that either the non-white person was manipulative or, you know, used her, you know, feminine ways to, you know, kind of, oh, no. no, no, no. I mean, it, it's, it's nonsense. No, uh, or to, it, you know, it get, is nonsense. To get in frequently, I would say that's another one where we're practicing racism because this is totally exploitative. Uh, and we've had uh, authors who came on the program that said, now what are the prices to saying no to a white man? in 1808 1828 2021 really but what are the prices to saying no I'm not going to do this right well we know the answer Um, yeah I know like I said this infuriated me I was so angry Um, it was very visceral Mm. you uh include there's a lot of historical information included uh throughout the book even as you're going on kind of your family history here and you talk about uh incidents in the life of a slave girl harriet jacobs uh people who've been hanging out with the cows for a minute we read that book in the book club way back when um and you talk just to include some of the details of what this whole plantation experience was like uh, the torture that some of the folks experienced and all that uh, just to make it authentic, you know, not pussyfooting. Love it. Uh, you write right. 
uh, when Harriet Jacobs gives birth to a girl fathered by her white consort, she despairs. Slavery is terrible for men, but it is far more terrible for women. Why did yeah. you include that quote from uh, Harriet Jacobs? Because I'm, I was making a point um, about sexual exploitation of women, of, of black women, and I wanted that in there. I, it was supporting how I felt about Marta. You know, this is my family I'm talking about. Granted, you know, it was a long time ago. It's still my family. Um, I bear their DNA. I bear their, their blood. And, you know, it just infuriated me. It just did, and I had to make that point. Because think about it. Just think what happened to women. Mm. This is uh, another point that we've brought up on the cows over the years uh, consistently. And I'm, I'm absolutely, hey, sexual exploitation of black females rife uh, throughout the plantation. Uh, in fact, uh, the Slave Coast, really important book, talks about really raping black females and forcing them to procreate uh, was yeah. one of the fundamentals uh, of how slavery operated, especially in this part of the world. I think we had the authors on the program back in 2016, uh, but we've also regularly talked about how one important component of slavery, really racism, white supremacy is the sexual exploitation of black males as well. And I, when I read that sentence, I said, wow, this is so interesting because the very book that you quote incidents in the life of a slave girl, it also features the sexual exploitation of a black male. Luke, Sarah talks about this. If you'll, and we got two like, whoa, she mentioned nigger babies at the beginning. I said delectable Negro back then. And now I get to bring it up again. Incidents in the life of a slave girl. That's a whole chapter in the book. Let me give the full title. It's the delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. This book is in my top 10. Oh, it's so amazing. Also in our book club, 2017. Vincent Woodard, the author, he writes, talking about incidents in the life of a slave girl. He says, not only can Luke not protect a hypothetical wife or child from abuse, he cannot protect himself from the sexual licentiousness of his master. Luke's unnamed master chains the black man to his bed, having fallen prey to the vices growing out of the patriarchal institution. Luke's master perpetrates the strangest freaks of despotism. Jacobs leaves it to her reader to imagine the details of these sexual acts, but does make it clear in her references to the patriarchal institution and the master's degraded wreck of manhood how thoroughly unmanned is Luke in the process of his enslavement she uses the term patriarchal institution elsewhere in the narrative to refer to masters who sexually violate black women on the plantation Luke's master treats him like a black woman. Jacobs wow. does not go so far, however, 
as to label Luke as feminine or womanly, her politics of black womanhood do not allow for feminine or womanly men. I will stop there. Do you remember Luke being described in Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet no, Jacobs? No, I, I, I'm sorry to say I don't. Um, I don't. I wish I could um, help you out there, but no, I don't. But we know, we know that rape is all, it's not about sex, it's about power. And um, that's what it's about. It's, it's power over another. For sure. I just I think that that's super important because, well, for many reasons, but two of uh, two of the ones that I'll share right now, I think many components of white supremacy, racism get ignored. And I think the book that I thought about so frequently, the half has never been told by Edward Baptist. He talks a lot about Louisiana and these placage arrangements and all that in Louis, New Orleans, the 1811 revolt and all that good stuff. Remember, I was thinking of that book frequently while reading your text, uh, but he also doesn't really do much discussion of black males being victims of sexual exploitation uh, during slavery. But the title of that book, the half has not been told or the half has never been told that mm. not including, Oh yeah, they were raping the females and the males and the children, all of the slaves. And it, it wasn't just the white men, white women. That's what I mean. Like it leaves out so much of what exactly yeah. was happening. And that fits with the pattern of us generally focusing on white males as the racists, the slave masters, and totally excluding that, oh yeah, white women were involved in this too. Even the sexual yeah. exploitation of black males, like it just, it leaves out a lot. Uh, and then it, yeah, it's lots that I could say about the Vincent Woodard whole chapter on uh, incidents in the life of a slave girl and how it's right. It's in a lot of the popular sources. It's right there. Uh, and people just don't invest as much time and energy into it. Uh, yeah. Let's see. I'll get in one more question and I'll nab uh, one of the listeners, uh, folks who dialed in. We're with uh, the author of White Like Her, uh, Mrs. Gail Lukasik. Uh, I guess we'll stay on this area of people, activity, sexual intercourse. Uh, you include the loving Supreme Court case uh, in your text. And you already yeah. mentioned Virginia yeah. and uh, how it wasn't until 1967 that they changed uh, the laws that made it uh, illegal uh, for a white person to be in some sort of marriage uh, with a black person. Uh, I always bring up with the with the the Richard and Mildred Loving case. Uh, were you aware that when their arrangement began, Richard, the white man, was 17 Mildred was 11? No, I didn't. I mean, I'm very familiar with the case. I didn't realize they were so young when it began. The, does that age disparity, does that mean anything? Or are these just two children? Well, yeah, they're, they're children. Yeah, they're pretty young. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you think if it was the other way around, so if it was uh, a black male who was 17 and a white woman who was 11, do you think this would be like a cause celeb, like case that everybody talks about, like, hey, this helped overturn the law? Oh, yeah. Ab ab you're absolutely right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Meaning? No, it would be a cause celeb. It would, yeah, it yeah, no, 11, she's a child. 
and that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. I find it super significant that this case is so popular. Like they have films uh, about this case yeah. and books and they bring it up on a regular basis. They had a big thing for the 50 year anniversary in 2017 and it pretty much never includes the age gap and this romance or what have you started. The black female is 11. The white man is 17. Uh, even right now that would be statutory rape. Like it wouldn't be anything to discuss. It that is. would be another it one. Is. It wouldn't be any yes, how they feel about it. Rape. You know, that's yeah. I just try and look at things logically like, hmm, I just don't. Uh, yeah, lots of things I would question about that in terms of why is this something to celebrate? Yeah, uh, let's no. see. Uh, I said I was going to get one of the folks. Oh, wait a minute. They're still I guess they're getting their questions. Together. So folks uh, that are listening in, if you have a question for Miss Gail Lukasik, uh the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, as they're getting their uh, questions together I guess I'll get in one more uh, area eight I believe sexual intercourse and then I'll get to some of the other parts parts of the book uh, you move to the portion, let's see, Joseph Urson, I believe, talking about one of your ancestors, and that apparently he was in uh, arrangements exclusively with non white females. Uh, you write, <clears throat> yeah, as a case, or excuse me, a case in point of how crucial it was not to have any taint of colored blood in any ancestral document is the infamous ring of oh <laughs> I read the wrong I already got that one in. Whoops reading the wrong uh Oh, can you tell me where you're at so I can follow with you? Well unfortunately I'm uh oh. in chapter twenty eight. Uh oh, okay. Louisian Santilli. Yes. That, yes. But I oh wait a minute, is this is that the correct make sure I'm looking at the correct uh correct footnote here so it is mentioned I'll go ahead and read it since I started it uh, okay. if she could provide an African if she could prove African ancestry however distant however small she would change that person's race in the official records of the city of New Orleans from white to black even a church document dated 1793 that racially identified Urson's mother as a quadroon even though marked out would be suspect and possible proof of African ancestry and disproving African ancestry was next to impossible. I'm just skipping a few pages over uh, where you're talking about, as oh. I said, him, uh, oh, yeah. Joseph Urson, engaging in uh, arrangements with females exclusively with non-white females. Uh, you said when America took over governance, uh, whoops, I'll even read a little bit more. One more paragraph. Could Urson have married a white woman? I don't know. In terms of legality, during his lifetime, interracial marriage was illegal in Louisiana. Would his altered baptismal record pass muster with Catholic Church considering it was recorded in the register for slaves and free people of color? What I do know is he sought out women of color and sired children with them, contributing to the three-tiered racial system in New Orleans. Urson knew that his children as free people of color 
would be hemmed in by the legal system and would be held in a lower status than whites. When America took over governance of Louisiana as early as 1808, the legislature curtailed the rights and privileges of the free people of color, making it clear that they were legally inferior and subordinate to whites. And yet, this was the world Urson chose for his children if he did have a choice. However diluted his colored blood was from his mestiza mother, he felt most comfortable with women of color like his mother. Or maybe I'm looking at Urson incorrectly. Maybe he felt wholly white and like so many white men of his time, he was enjoying plaquage arrangements with none of the burden of matrimony indulging in the white patriarchal system. That one was an important one and just in terms of acknowledging I don't know <laughs> what was happening I, I here. I don't know. I you don't a, know. Did you find a picture of Urson by chance? Oh, I wish. Hmm. I still don't have a picture of my grandfather. Hmm. I've never seen the man. Yeah, I don't have a picture of him. That would be informative to some level, yes? Like if we could see if he could pass for white or, you know, if he it, was... I, I have a feeling he could because there was a record of him. Uh, I think he came to work in Indiana at, some, at a steel mill and on that card, his employment card, it had him listed as white. Mm. So I have a feeling he could pass. And my mother always said that she resembled her father she did. I, I saw her mother, so I know she didn't look like her mother. She looked like her father. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. He certainly could have. That's why I said I think it's important because so many times it just it drifts into the these romance narratives where everything is some sort of plantation romance and they got beyond no. all of this where it's hey, no there were many individuals who were able to no. to be classified as white and even some non-white people who just totally exploited the system, totally took advantage of black people in every possible way we could imagine and probably many ways that we can't imagine. Like, things get minimized and sanitized greatly. Uh, let's see, I'll stick true to yeah. my word. Did, did I cut you off? Sorry about that. No, it's fine. No, I was agreeing with you. All right, Owen. Uh, let's see. The person who we mentioned Virginia so many times, the coon man. Uh, I'm on limit. I can't believe it. They're about to have a new governor. I won't be able to say that in like a month. Uh -huh. I'm so disgusted. Uh, our caller in the great state of Virginia with the coon man. Uh, did you have a question for Gail Lukasik, author of White Like Her? You should be with us. Hello. Um, thank you so much. Yes, we, we won't be able to make that. Um, designation anymore. <laughs> cool, man. Um, my question for you, Ms. Um, Kazik, thank you for being a part of the show, uh, the program. I'm curious, um, at, you mentioned that you found this out, this information out when you were 49 years old. Yeah. Up until then, had you pretty much been living with white people, around white people, and did you have any black so-called friends, or um, how, what was your interaction with black people up until the point of learning this learning about your ancestry. Okay, growing up, I grew up in Parma, Ohio, so that was all white, a white suburb of Cleveland. 
Um, however, um, once I married and moved to to Illinois, I live in a suburb of Chicago. I went back to school. Um, I went to graduate school, so I had um, you know lots of interactions and uh, friendships with all kinds of races, black, you know, um, Asian. So it's because you're in Chicago, you know, it's a big melting pot. So, and that was uh, different than where I grew up. Okay, thank you. That's all I asked. I'll continue to listen. Much obliged, our caller in the great Commonwealth of VA, uh, our guest, I even forgot, you're in, uh, you're neighbors with Kyle Rittenhouse. Aren't you all both in Illinois? <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> yes. Right there. Yes. One of his. Yeah, cr- <laughs> yeah he's, he's north of me up in Antioch. Yes. Wow. Yeah, very familiar I with think, that whole terrible thing. I think some of these locations are sundown towns that are being mentioned. Uh, our book club is getting so many plugs and he just passed away. James Lowen sundown towns. But I think Antioch for sure is a sundown town. Is it? In I Chicago. didn't know that. Is like I would like, have to, oh, really? I would be willing to wager like $5 right now that Antioch is listed in that book as a sundown town. And I would even, wow. I think Parma might be too. You know, how many were the, what was the, uh, give me Parma again. What were the demographics? How many black people were in Parma, Ohio? Oh, I when I was growing up, I don't think there were any that I know of anyway. I put five so, on that one, you know, too. Yeah, you're probably right on that one. Um, but, you know, I'm up north of Chicago, so there are other towns like Waukegan and North Chicago that are, um, you know, black, Hispanic, uh, all kinds of ethnicities. So it's kind of, you know, depends on what town you're in up here. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, let's see the person who dialed in, uh, cherry in Atlanta. Uh, if you have a question for Ms. Lukasik, you should be with us. Hi, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, greetings to everyone. Um, I'm a little late tuning in, so please forgive me if this has already been addressed. Um, but I wasn't really familiar with the, the book, but I see that your mother has African ancestry. So I was just wondering what percentage of African ancestry she had? I wish I knew that. Um, I can only go by what I have, and I'm 7 to 9%, so I would think she would have. Well, okay, let me put it this way. I was able to uh, talk with a contemporary cousin of hers, and she did have her DNA done. I think she told me she was 13%. So she probably would be closer to my mom because they were first cousins. Um, But, you know, there was no DNA when my mom was, well, at least my mom, my mom was in denial anyway, so she wouldn't have wanted to get a DNA test. I can pretty much tell you that. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I say this with all due respect, um, because I did see the picture of you and your mother, Alvera. Um, and to me, she looks like a fully blooded white woman. So if my DNA ancestry is to be accepted as truthful, it says I'm like 27% European ancestry. So 
I just don't understand, like, why is it significant to write this book that your mother's black when, I mean, if it's to be trusted, what you're saying about the ancestry. I have more white European ancestry. Not that I'm claiming that I'm European, but I have more white European ancestry than your mother. So for her to, you know, for you to write this book, I'm just understanding. I just want to understand oh, sure. the significance of what was, you oh, know, yeah. the thought process. It, well, she was designated as colored. That's what it says on her birth certificate. And mm-hmm. um and so was her sister. And um and her our ancestors um were designated as um colored as well. So she grew up in Jim Crow South and um that was her designation. And what she and her sister decided not to pass. So she married a man of mixed race as well. So my mother decided to pass. She didn't want that life. And I I hope I'm making this clear. Um, Yeah, but I've had people say to me, oh, I could see the Creole. I could see that she was Creole or, you know, um, I I don't know. I just know that that's what her designation was and that's what our ancestry is. Okay, yeah, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm sorry, with all due respect, I just didn't understand, like, why it's so significant, because, I mean, your mother looks like a pure European white woman, but I don't know, I'm just going by phenotypically, yeah. and she looks, so, yeah. um, but that's all we have. Okay, thank I, you. no, I, I get where you're coming okay. from, yeah. Okay, thank you, I'll meet my line. Much obliged, let's see, I think this is... Might be one of our callers in Ohio. Uh, did you have a question for Ms. Lukasik? Uh, greetings, uh, Gus, and greetings to the guests. Um, I was curious, what years did you live in uh, Cleveland, the Cleveland suburb? Um, let's see. I le- I was there, well, I was born in 46, so... Um, but we didn't move to the suburbs till I was around eight. So, and then I left in '68. And during that time period, during the 1960s, how would you characterize the reputation of Parma um, among Clevelanders? Well, I, there was a lot of jokes made about Parma. I know that it was people like to put it down. Um, you know, I was a kid. I, that's all I, that's how I, you're from Ohio? Yes. And, um, did, did you grow up in the Parma area or? No, no, I did not. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, we're West side, West side of Cleveland. It's a working class suburb. And I know there was, there was some, guy on TV that made fun of Parma a lot. I don't remember his name. But it was white. Uh, it was, yeah. Gus had mentioned that um, that it was a, uh, could be a sundown town. Would that be accurate? I don't know. I don't know that. Um, you know, again, I left when I was 21. I honestly don't know if it was. I wasn't aware of anything like that. Um, I never heard that discussed. I never heard anyone say that. So I have no idea. 
uh, I just found it curious because, uh, you know, Parma was notorious in the city of Cleveland during that time period. Oh, it was? was? I've never seen a place that was so ridiculed. Yeah, it was ridiculed. Uh, by the right. city of Cleveland. I think it's, I think it's an underestimating how uh, how Clevelanders viewed the city of Parma, that it was well, basically uh, a town of ignorance. Well, and uh, I was just you know, found that curious. It, and I well, think it's, yeah. I think it's accurate to consider it a, a sundown town. It was sued by the federal government and the NAACP for housing discrimination. It's just fascinating that your mom, who was passing, would wind up in a town like that. I yeah, that is, that interesting. that is. Yeah, you're right. That is fascinating. Um, but you know, you can't paint everyone with the same brush. Um, you know, people are different. I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I I'm not really aware of a lot of that. But um, you know, I, I was a kid, um, so I don't know. Well, I was a kid also, and I was aware of it. So, I mean, I I That's- knew it was ridiculed. But I didn't know about the housing or any of that. Uh, that was my only question. Thanks, Gus. <laughs> can I can I say it? I don't know how. This is such a, a great plug for the book club because I said we read James Lowen's Sundown Town. So I guess maybe I could get a plug. Had someone who had the audacity to say that Gus, you have a faulty memory. I said, dang. Well, that might be true. I never said I had a photographic memory. But I said, we did read Sundown Towns, and I said, Parma, I'll put $5 that that's a Sundown Town. James Lowen passed away this year. I'm looking at his book. This is the chapter Night Work in Sundown Towns. Even that is kind of risque, Night Work. Uh, he writes, similarly, an African-American college student from the Cleveland area said, my mom worked in Parma and they never encouraged her to stay late to get overtime. It was always, why don't you come in early? They didn't want her in Parma after dark. Well, I learned something. Parma comes up again. I'll get one more in because we did read all this. This is, you know, savings and learning is what they call this. Let's see. The second time Parma pops. Oh, it's in here repeatedly. So let's see. Race not market usually underlies suburban vetoes of public housing and subsidized housing after a developer tried to build subsidized housing in parma a so oh, he says it definitively a sundown suburb of cleveland voters in 1971 overwhelmingly endorsed a proposal requiring public approval for any subsidized housing project other cleveland suburbs followed suit Racial fears were prominent in the controversy, Danielson reports. In 1970, Parma had just 50, 50, like five zero. Parma had just 50 African Americans in a total population of 100,000. 216 and one official announced that he did not want Negroes in the city of Parma. 
that is about as official as you can get. Yeah. James Lowen, sundown. And I said again, I thought it was so important when he passed just literally a few weeks ago. They didn't mention this book. They mentioned lies. My teachers told me, which is, you know, whatever. He did write that one, too. But this is way more important. They made a database of this book. Parma's on it about. Keep, I mean, that is amazing. You grew up in a town with 50 black people. <laughs> Were you, I, you well you know by 70 by 1971 I was gone I got married in 68 I was um my husband uh it was Vietnam War so he um he was going to be drafted so we either he got drafted or he signed up so we were gone um you know so wow. I, yeah but that is fascinating how long were you in Parma again what years from birth to uh, no um no we lived in cleveland when i was born so mm. i'm thinking uh, i was maybe eight when we moved to parma so that would be what eight fifty something early 50s somewhere in there you know i was eight years old wow amazing that book is not in my top 10 but i do reference it on a regular basis it is very very common uh, vice presidents uh all kinds of white people our author our guest gail lukasik grew up yeah. in sunday well you know that makes it really even more interesting is that two doors down from us was a japanese family and you got to remember this is after world war ii and um they were very scared, you know. It was. I remember this. That I do remember because it's in my little neighborhood. So I and I have that incident in the book um, because my brother played with their son. So that was the only <laughs> non-white in our neighborhood, I guess. Mm, that's even uh, one. I was going to say that's even uh, covered the fact that you could have uh, a non-white family uh, Japanese family uh, that's that close and not a black family he talks about how this was especially for black people uh, so I'm yeah. not surprised they could maybe have one and then them be harassed I do remember that incident uh, from yeah. uh, the book where the white mom was upset about the uh, children and she came to see if your mom would go and uh, you know smooth things over um, yeah my mom yeah yeah but there um we all got along fine. I mean, there was no one was harassing the Japanese family. It was a tussle with the young boys. They got in a tussle with one of the other neighbor kids. And uh, Mrs. Nakao did not want to be the one to go and talk to the to the white mother. She asked my mother to do it, thinking my mother would be the ambassador, you know, to smooth things over. That stood out in my mind. I don't know why it really did makes logical sense like uh yeah especially during that war even now but especially during that time period makes very logical sense um yeah you as well you know my dad my dad served in world war Two and served in the south pacific and did fight the japanese mm. but these were these were americans they weren't from japan they were americans <laughs> doesn't matter japs a jap they had signs that said that uh, prominently so i know japs I a know. jap 
yes, as a writer. I hear you. <laughs> I hope uh, you can appreciate on this program. Words are so you know important, uh, and I emphasize that's one of the main ways that racism, white supremacy, is practiced. Uh, in being inaccurate with words, confusing with words. We talk about metaphors specifically all the time. We literally have one broadcast each week uh, where I say, hey, we can, you know, express your views, say whatever you need to, but no metaphors just to encourage people to be more uh, precise, uh, aware of their speech, and and particularly sometimes the comparisons uh, that get made with language. So I'm hoping you'll indulge me uh, as as a writer. Um, I looked at three sure. metaphors uh, that you use specifically. The first one you write, it's the 21st century and still no one knows how to talk about race in America. The stain of slavery seems to lie under everyone's skin like a latent disease there's no cure for. Even scratching the surface seems to cause the disease to break out in the most unpredictable ways. What did you? What were you trying to say in this paragraph? Because it's a lot of metaphors here. Oh, on two forty-two, I'm looking at it. Um, this is when I gave incidents of when I'm doing started doing presentations, and um, of course. Most of my audiences at this time were white, so people were uncomfortable talking about race, and I think that's what I was trying to say, um, that exactly what I'm saying. I mean, you may not like my metaphors, but um, I am a poet, and so I use metaphors. Um, But, yeah, these incidents of people not knowing how to talk about race and getting uncomfortable. Um, and that happened a lot. That happened a lot in, in uh, my presentations. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's why I think unpacking the metaphors is so uh, critical as well. Uh, I think number one, uh, a lot of these are skin metaphors, uh, just beneath the skin and and scratching and racism, white supremacy is about mistreating people on the basis of skin color. So I think that's a substantial one. And then the stain of slavery, I think uh, that's, yeah, that's a fascinating metaphor as well. I, I do point out regularly, though, I'm talking about racism, white supremacy, which is just like one component of white supremacy racism because you have, you know, different stories like uh, I think Vessie Jeffers, uh, who you meet way down the road towards the end of the book after the genealogy roadshow and everything like uh, when she talks about how uh, her, I think it was her grandmother uh, was killed for passing. Oh, yes. Right. That's not slavery. Yes. You know, that's racism, white no. supremacy. So, I mean, it's, no, it's way beyond, right. yeah. uh, you know, in terms yeah. of what we're talking about. But that's And even what you shared, I think is important because all of these metaphors, if all of this is about, hey, I'm doing promotions, talks about my book and I'm having mostly white audiences. And it's seeming like white people are not comfortable talking about racism, white supremacy. That is very different than this collection of metaphors. And that's what I said before. 
regularly. I, you said you're a poet. I found that this pattern is widespread with people who are not poets. They are not writers. They are not even eloquent with English or any other language, but the metaphors and it frequently it what same verb I used before it obfuscates it minimizes it's the same direction too. it minimizes it takes attention away from what are things that white people do that maintain practice racism white supremacy the being circumloquacious about things especially about white behaviors that is a big one uh, so let's see this is second metaphor oh this was a great one uh, alright so this is chapter 21 uh, and you're talking about your mother. I'll give him one extra paragraph. Rosa Parks always left. In 1955, our first year in the Parma House, <laughs> Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus, sparking the Montgomery bus boycott and bringing Martin Luther King Jr. to the forefront of the civil rights movement. A year earlier, the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown v. Board of Education overturned the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson decision. State laws on segregation were deemed unconstitutional. Public schools could no longer discriminate on the basis of race, paving the way for integration. Metaphor coming. Whatever she is, uh, Miss Lukasik's mom in this case, whatever she felt about these legal changes that had ruled her life and determined it, forcing her to make the difficult decision to leave her home and pass as white she never said and whatever progress was being made for racial equality in the United States it had little to no effect on my mother's personal circumstances and her day-to-day -day existence in the white suburb it was almost as if she was in a witness protection program that metaphor uh, how is how is your mom's uh kind of situation here in ohio at this time how do you think that's comparable to a witness protection program she wasn't living her true self she wasn't who she really was she wasn't her authentic self she couldn't be she didn't allow herself to be that's how i looked at it Okay. My understanding, and this is why I tell folks, you know, and kind of unpack the metaphors. I think it's important to look at the things that are being compared. Uh, my understanding of witness protection program, generally it's people who have some sort of information about criminal behavior uh, and they're helping towards justice, getting these folks prosecuted, that sort of thing, uh, and that they're having to be kind of tucked away uh, and hidden. Uh, because someone might be trying to get them uh, be, to stop them uh, from helping with the production of justice, sharing this information. Like, that's my understanding of witness protection. Like, if you are passing, doing what you need to do to be accepted as white, passing as white, others call it. If you're doing those things, you're not you're not doing anything to help uh, with the production of justice. You're not sharing any information about some sort of criminal activity and trying to get that stopped. Like. You're just doing what you need to do to be accepted as white to for your own betterment, betterment of your offspring. Totally logical. But I mean, that's at least in my view, that is very different than my understanding of witness protection. Uh, is that is that logical? Do you have a different understanding of the witness protection program? 
Well, I, I guess I didn't think on it that deeply, but no, I didn't think of it that way. You know, and I said it was almost as if she was in a... But no, I, I thought of it as that she was hiding out and that her true self wasn't known. I didn't um, think of it in terms of the justice angle. That unless I'm mistaken, generally people that are in witness protection programs, it's generally about production of justice. Like you, you are not just hanging out and hiding uh, for whatever reason. It's you're hanging out because you're sharing information, uh, and it's right. in you fact this information, information is so right. vital that people might yeah. try to do you harm. Like that's not at all like how your mom was functioning. And I think it's important. Even it gets down to I generally I work against saying the word passing. In my view. If you are accepted as a white person, that's what it is. Are you accepted as a white person? Yes. If you're so-called passing, you're accepted as a white person. If that's true, in order to function as a white person, you have to practice racism, white supremacy. Now, that might come in a lot of different forms. That doesn't say that you have to go out and lynch 50 black people or what have you or even tell a racist joke. But it does mean if same same thing going back to those racist jokes other white people who practice racism they assume if you are classified as white you also practice racism that's a part of what you are going to have to do in a functional sense if you are accepted as white you can call that passing and that that is the case for anybody who is classified as white is what i'm saying is that is that logical I don't see it the way you're seeing it, but, you know, everyone has their opinion. Um, well, I, the, I, I the question, I want to get your I response. I didn't I just see it make sure. that way for, for my mother, and um, I just don't see it that way for her. Right, but the question was, is that logical, what I just said? I don't know. Do you think if you are classified as white that there are ways you you do not have to practice racism, white supremacy, that you can be a white person accepted as white by other individuals who are white and who do practice racism and you don't have to go along with any of that? Do you think that's possible? I okay. You know, we're twisting words and and I look, I thought of myself as white for 49 years. I did not practice racism. If, if you're saying because I thought of myself as white, I'm racist, I don't accept that. Oh no, that's that's not what that's not what I said. I just I want to go back. Even the question was just about. I said I don't use the word passing, and that's because if you are accepted as white, a part of that is a requirement. You have to be complicit with the practice of racism, white supremacy. And I said, do you think that's accurate? That's why I'm, I'm asking you. So the question, do you think if you're classified as white, you are required to be complicit in some manner with the system of white supremacy racism? Do you think that's true or no? I really don't. Um, I, I, just, I don't. Okay. Can you, can you give a little explanation as to why you don't think that's true? Because um, the color of my skin and, you know, white power, as you were saying earlier, doesn't mean that I'm complicit in racism. I just don't see it that way. 
and I feel like you're trying to twist me into saying something that, you know, you you can believe that. That's fine. Um, but that's not how I see it. And honestly, I, I'm not understanding the agenda here. I'm sort of wondering where we're going with this whole conversation. Well... I guess number one, uh, as I said before, like we're striving to be adults. Like I do not, there should not be twisting. That's another metaphor because we're, you're in central time zone and I'm on the West coast. So there can't be any twisting. I said from the very beginning, like, I don't want you to just go along, you know, with something that I say right. just because right. it sounds right. I said, go ahead and give whatever your view is. And if we don't have the same view, that's totally fine. Like I said, with racism, if you don't agree, that's totally fine. I asked, do you, are you saying if you're a white person, you're classified, accepted as white. I said, you have to be complicit in the system of racism, white supremacy. You said, that's not true. No problem. I just asked for, you know, give me some, some reasoning behind that. And you did. That's the agenda for the program. Reveal truth, get your views about the book, racism, white supremacy. That's what we've been doing for the time that we've been uh, speaking with you. I would just ask listen, non-white listeners to think about that critically. In fact, we can go back to the book. I had one more metaphor, but go back to the book to your father. Cause I thought this was important. I even, I think I asked about this one as well, but you in the book didn't do any pussyfooting at all. You said my father was racist. Can you give like specific you, examples? Like why can, you can be so, so bold in that declaration with your father. Um, can you, can you tell me the page where I, I called him racist? Yes, ma'am. I mean, I, he, he's a bigot. Yeah, he was a bigot. There's no getting around it. Is there? Do you differentiate those two terms, racist and bigot? Do they? Well, I they... don't know. I don't. I don't know. Um, I suppose it's all the same. But um, I, you know, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Okay, it's on. It's in uh, chapter twenty-one, hiding in plain sight. I'll give the paragraph so you can find it. So right after water for Nick, <laughs> let me get the whole paragraph. <laughs> Closer to home, tensions were rising in the rigidity, in the rigidly sorry segregated east side of Cleveland, where the majority of African Americans lived. In nineteen sixty-six, the predominantly black how this neighborhood erupted into a race yeah. riot purportedly yep. sparked by the owner of the 79ers cafe who refused to give a black customer a glass of water and subsequently posted a sign outside the cafe that read no water for niggers. Can you believe I didn't highlight that? Come on. The riots lasted six nights and resulted in the death of four African-Americans in the working class town of Parma. Many white people's attitudes towards racial segregation held firm regardless of the changing laws. Their attitudes were born of cultural racism fostered in the tight ethnic Cleveland communities where many of them grew up. My father yeah, was one right. of those racists. Yep, he was. Yep. So my question can can you give some examples specifically of things that your father did to unequivocally for you to say that yes, he was a racist? Um, I think we talk about this in the book. Um, he um, had a attitude toward black people that they were lazy. Um, it, it was you know these stereotypes um, about blacks and 
you know, he never he never used the N word and um but he had other terms that he liked to use. But you know, this was not like this was my everyday. I I'm we're being honest here, so this was on occasion. And my mother would object, as you can imagine. Um so, you know, and she and I would have separate conversations where she would give her point of view. And, of course, you know, I talk in the book about this. My father was an alcoholic. So I'm going to identify with my mother. I'm not going to identify with my father. Wow. For readers, you write, this is a couple pages over, still in Chapter 21, My Father's Racism was a reflection of his upbringing in the close-knit Cleveland Bohemian neighborhood. Though he never used the N-word, he was vocal about his bigotry using words such as jigaboo, spear-chucker, and coon, deriding the African-American race for lack of ambition and criminality. Right. One, I create reminder for non-white listeners no name calling uh we do not want to be sitting around repeating uh any of the insults uh that racists have used uh to degrade and humiliate black people for i don't know centuries who knows at this point um mm-hmm. can can you recall like as you said this would this was not daily but it would happen no. um like who who would be like the source of black person source of your father's frustration would it be that coon or a spirit like would it be somebody on television or somebody that he worked yeah, with yeah be like, some i mean i don't have a specific person you know but it'd be maybe he'd see something on television maybe it would be the news and there would be you know, some criminality involved and it might have been a black person i don't you know, again, I just know I'm aware of it. I know it's happening. I'm a kid. Um, so, as, you know, I identified more with my mom. Um, that's, you know, I saw it for what it was uh, as I got older. Didn't know it at the time. But, you know, as I got older, I saw it for what it was. Hmm. That's interesting. You said that your mom, she would, you know, try to casually tell him, you know, not to talk this way, but not get too excited about it. And I found that interesting because, you know, this whole book has been about how, hey, your mom is uh, pretending, acting, hoping that she's not discovered uh, to be a white person. Um, That that is very similar, almost identical, really to what some white people have said on the program. We've even had some white women who said Farrah Winfrey uh, for folks in the archive. She is on the program way back in 2007. Uh, and she said that her mom, that that was the exact dynamic, that her father was overtly racist, same type of thing, racist jokes, nigger this, coon that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she said her mom would never do that. Never use any of that language. No, she would always speak very nicely about black people. I was going to say non-white people, but I mean black people always spoke nicely about them and you know nothing of that sort but if a black person uh, came over if they drank out of a cup or what have you she would throw the cup in the trash like just she was racist but she said she was more refined and in fact Farrell Winfrey she said that her mother was more dangerous because you would get mm-hmm. the appearance or think that, oh, she's not racist because she doesn't do all that and scolds right. her dad when he does that sort of thing. Like, that is very common to have a white woman who is not as coarse. 
doesn't, you know, engage in the racist jokes and everything. But going back even to what I said before, hey, you are married to a racist. You are, in my view, is that not being complicit in the system of racism, white supremacy? Like, is it is it possible that your mom, she could not find a a non-racist white man to marry? I don't know that. I don't have any idea. I wouldn't know how to answer that. Um, You know, when I was growing up, I had a very chaotic home life, and um, it was tough uh, being the daughter of an alcoholic. So I would sometimes go to her and say, Mom, I would ask her, you know, why did you marry him? I did. And um, she gave me the strangest answer. She said, um, it's because he offered me security. So you can take that however you want, but that's what she said. Hmm. I will just submit for listeners, like that would be the same, I would have the same question, follow the same logic, uh, even if it was not someone who was so-called passing for white. Uh, If we were just talking about any old regular white woman who has uh, two white parents, four white grandparents, eight white great-grandparents, uh, and she was in the same type of situation. Husband was a racist. No ambiguity. You're with this person. You are complicit in the system of white supremacy. That's one thing we could do right now to fast forward. Like, hey, I'm not marrying a racist. Like, that's top of the list. Like, income and all the rest of it. You got yeah, a job. Right. You haven't been in jail. You got all your teeth. You can't practice racism, white supremacy. And I would hold the same standard, even if it's a non-white person and you're so-called passing. Hey find a non-racist white man and shack up with them like hey and then you can do all that and all the rest but I mean hey if you are married to a racist and procreating with a racist you are you are complicit I mean they say it's a reason that uh, spouses are not compelled to testify against one another let me ask you this Gus so what is your opinion of my mother she was accepted as a white person, as I've said before, I'm just following logic. If you are accepted as a white person, there are requirements. It's not the same thing that you said. I asked you before. I said, Miss Lukasik, you have white power. That's what you've had, not white privilege. And you said, yes, that access to white power so, and privilege that they well, wait, so, let me answer the question. Let me finish answering your question. Oh, that access ahead. to white power uh, comes with requirements. You are complicit in the practice of racism, white supremacy. I'm just following logic. I don't know how you could be a white person accepted as a white person, as you said, function as a white person in any area of people activity and not be complicit in the system of racism. That's my response. Okay. I could be an error. Uh, Let's see. The make sure we don't miss any callers in the time that we have your caller victim in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Miss Lukasik? You should be with us. Volume is very low, uh, like kind of it's super muffled. Okay. Is that better? Like a thousand percent. Yes, sir. Got you. Um, I, you know, I, I was just kind of listening. Um, okay. Being though, like, you know, your mother pet was passing and, and you do have, um, some black blood in you. So 
do you classify yourself as non-white today? I classify myself as mixed race. Okay. Um, when talk when talking about racism, um, and I could be incorrect. I was just listening to some of the questioning from Gus, and you got defensive. Um, and I and I see this same. Um, uh, I I kind of see the same thing from white guests that come on the show or that I see on other shows. What is it about racism being though that people who are classified as white has the most power and is practicing this mistreatment? What makes white people so defensive when we talk about race in this country, being though that they are coming, they're they're in a position of power. What makes them so defensive? So what? I'm not getting that word. So like sensitive? Did you uh, say defensive? Defensive. Oh, defensive. Yeah. Defensive. Yeah. Um, I can't speak for other people. I can only speak for myself. Um, I don't consider myself racist. So. I mean, everyone has their own definition. I don't... Look, I didn't have to write this book. Um, You know, I wrote it. I was hoping it would open a dialogue. I was hoping that people would, um, you know, get a history of racism in the country. Other than that, that's what I was trying to do. And um, I realize that everyone... we We all read books in with our own experience. So, and, you know, that's fine. Um, right. Gotcha. But, I mean, being though that you wrote the book, but what, but, I mean, even when, like, you know, Gus uh, is repeating verbatim things that you said, and he's just putting, just basically asking logical questions based on the information you gave what, what, you know, what's the reason to be defensive? Even to say that, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. I, I don't. It was is was that the end goal of your book to express that, you know, even though your mother was passing and you're of mixed race, that you're not racist. Was that the conclusion? No, that you wanted not. the readers to come with. No. Not at all. That wasn't in my mind. It was to tell a story, exactly how I began this interview. Um, I didn't realize I was sounding defensive. Um, right. You know, I'm. look, I'm just trying to be honest. That's it. I wanted to tell my mother's story. I told it. But, you, you, I mean, so do you think that um, even if you did come across as... as uh, defensive or if other non-white white people get defensive and you know want to express that they're um not racist i mean do you do you think that the truth is just you know just too much of a harsh indictment on white society and that's where no, not at all people white, become defensive no absolutely not i think white people have a lot to answer for okay yeah no i I feel like I'm being painted into a corner that I never said I was in. So 
I don't know. Right. I I think white people have done terrible things, and they're continuing to do terrible things. Right. Because I mean, because of me personally, I I'm I'm in I like you know me I'm in the system of white supremacy. So even though I classify myself as black and a victim, I too. And, and complicit like there's no way that you can operate in this system as a collective and not be complicit i mean do you do you agree i mean even well that with, i agree you know, not, with that i do okay. yeah the way you're putting that yeah i do agree with that okay all right thanks a lot thanks Gus. okay thank you for sure i have uh my last two questions, I want to double check. Did we miss any of the folks who dialed in? Everybody got their questions in. It's happy with uh, Miss Lukasik, the uh, responses that we got this evening. What's that? Are we happy? Yeah. I was just checking with the listeners to make sure I didn't miss any of the folks who dialed in, make sure they didn't have a question for you. I had two questions, and then uh, we'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. My first one, uh, you asked earlier, you said, I think it was one of the folks who was asking why you wrote this book. Uh, you said your, your general sense is that there are not too many books on the subject of passing, uh, as though this is, I think saying basically this is not something that, is, that gets talked about uh, very much. And you asked if, if I thought that was true. Uh, and I said I would pen it, come back to it. Having had some time to think about it, um, I think this is like a pretty popular genre um, for like centuries, like there. Well, like, I was quoting. I was quoting Kenyatta Berry. That's what she told me. <laughs> that is kind. Of, I will say that that's cliche. We talked about that for a while. Quoting a non-white person, especially if it's something that's not. No, accurate. I'm telling but, you what happened. I'm oh yeah, I'm, I'm, she told I'm not me. disputing that. I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying that that is very common where white people will quote a non-white person. Frequently, it'll be a deceased non-white person, but it'll be something that is inaccurate about white supremacy racism. Uh, I'm not disputing that Miss Barry told you that. I'm just saying that, I mean, this is like a genre, like passing. They have whole books. In fact, uh, I was thinking, one, have you seen Anthony Hopkins' film, The Human Sting? Came out in 2004? Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, met. Uh, you don't have to like go with it. If you had 30 seconds, what are your thoughts about that film? Kerry Washington's in it. I, you know, honestly, I don't remember it that well, but I remember seeing it and I thought it was good. But um, I, I, I don't remember it well enough to comment. Okay. We didn't invite you to have a film review, but there are lots yeah. of movies uh, and books uh, about passing that's one that's a really like wow that is an excellent one uh in fact they just had one that came out like literally in the past couple of days uh it's a yeah, passing yeah it's a 2021 yeah. adaptation of uh nella larson's book which is like throughout the canon like many folks going through college when they talk about racism and uh mixed race studies and all of that like that is required reading uh for many many folks and like they have lots of books that are like that uh, I've read a number. They have lots of even films uh, that are like that. But anyway, uh, so that's having time to think about it. Like, I think it's pretty popular. I don't think that that's a, I think white people have been obsessed with this fear of there being some niggers that slip over onto the white side for centuries, just like with racist jokes and some of the other things that we've been talking about. The other one, uh, this is from the book. So I have to flip. I'll make sure I give you the chapter. So this is chapter. 34 crossing back over chapter 34 
and I will point out the call, uh, victim in New Jersey with the defensiveness. I definitely highlight that, like especially there were numerous times. But when I said that you said that your father was a racist and you got defensive about that, and it's right in the book uh, that you said it. Yeah, like, no, you're right. It's in the book. Yeah, you know. No, you're right. For sure. So we're reading from the book. Uh, you're right. <clears throat> so this is later on. They're coming back after the follow-up from her first round with the genealogy roadshow, all popular. I think uh, Miss Barry uh, comes back and said she was one of her favorite, or the favorite, I think, uh, segment that they did uh, on this long-running series. Anyway, uh, you're right. While we shoot, a rooster walks across the street. Then a black man at the end of the block shouts at us. Well, sing moment. Don't put me on TV. If the police see me on TV, I might have to go to jail. There are warrants out for me. The crew stops shooting and we wait patiently for the man to go back into his house. Then Lisa says, how do you feel seeing your mother's house? I'm skipping uh, through some of your response over. I guess this probably be like the next page or so. Uh, You write. In the evening, sitting in our hotel room on Magazine Street, my underground emotions surface. In my journal, I write about the melancholy and tremendous sadness I felt seeing the house on St. Anne Street because I know my mother will never grow up in this house and that her parents will separate when she's six, that her mother will lose custody and she and her sister, Shirley, will be shuffled around from one relative to another. Then, in 1940, they'll be living with cousin Teresa Spikes, the school teacher. That this house will be the first and last place they will live together as a family. If only I had been able to tell Lisa that while the camera rolled and heat poured down and the crazy man shouted at us. I'll pause for Alton Sterling just because this happened in Louisiana. I thought that was significant. Why did you include uh, this black fella who walked through and asked not to be filmed? Because it happened, and it um, it happened. Is this the person that you were referring to as being crazy who shouted at you all, or was it somebody else? I think that was the only person that was on the street at that time. So that would be yes. This is the person that you were referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you have any, it doesn't seem very sympathizing, like referring to a, but do you think that's a like legitimate concern being filmed? If you might be pursued by enforcement officers. I only repeated what he said. I mean, yes, probably it's not sympathizing, but I referred to white people in the book that I wasn't sympathetic to either. Um, Hmm. I was reporting what happened. Do you think I should not have said that since he was black? No, it's it's not about whether I think you should have said it or not, but this happened in New Orleans, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, New Orleans has a consent decree. Uh, their police department, like they have a long history 
um, of abusing black males specifically um, before Katrina, during Katrina, after Katrina. They have long documentaries and books, and that's almost a genre to itself, police abuse of black people throughout the history of the city of New Orleans. Um, so black people, black males specifically, might have lots of reasons to want to avoid enforcement officers in New Orleans. And all of that information is just discarded that he might have legitimate concerns. It's, oh man, this crime, I mean, really that sort of tone, you really might as well have inserted your father's language. Like that's the, that's the way that it sounds like interrupting this moment where you're trying to reflect on your mother and the family disruptions and connection to this spot and, and all of this hard work to get to this moment. And, ah, uh, it's some crazy coon jigaboo comes through yelling like that's really I, I did not I did not use any of those terms you sir I said what I said was it really would have been the same because that's the tone that's conveyed this is not a human being this is not someone okay. that we should sympathize with like I said it doesn't even sound like this is a respectable request like hey I really would prefer not to be filmed uh, particularly with all the concerns about facial recognition and what have you that are going around now like what might to some seem like a reasonable request can easily okay. just be dismissed as this is a crazy black person uh, who, you know, ruined my moment thinking about my family. I said that I could see how one could read it that way. It doesn't seem. Do you think it sounds very sympathetic or humanizing to this black fella? Look, I, I'm I'm not going to defend or, or say anything. I told you exactly what I was thinking, why it was there. And if you want to take me to task for that, that's fine. Um, it wasn't meant that way. I didn't say it that way. And I know you're going to say, well, that's because I'm white power and I don't think right. But um, you know what? That's okay. I think I'm tired and I think it's time for me to get off. Okay. Well, you did do some uh, the metaphor. I think they would frequently use putting words uh, in someone's mouth because I didn't say uh, many of those things. I just said that I could see how one could read it that way in the text, but that's why I wanted to ask questions just to kind of get your, your thoughts on how it got constructed, how it sounds to you. Always best to ask the author for it, additional you, insight. You know what, Gus? It doesn't feel that way when when it feels a little bit like an interrogation. And um, but the way you cherry-picked, so it. I get it. I totally get it. It's fine. Um, I just, um, it's okay. All right. I think I've said enough. Cherry pick. That's interesting. Were there any parts of the book that I, that I omitted or didn't, you know, didn't include? Oh, there's a whole lot, but, but I, I understand your show. I understand, um, you know, you explained it to me in the beginning. So it's clear. Okay. Well, much obliged for hanging out. This does feel like being defensive, though, I would say, which is pretty common. Well, I like, figured uh, you were going to say that. I figured that was. It sounds it sounds very, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. white people mm -hmm. being defensive and obfuscating okay. for what I would say is not, you know, any real reason. We've just been chatting about the book. And uh, in fact, I'll say this because I'll say it again once you exit that, man. I would challenge anybody 
all the interviews that you've done, this book has been out more than a couple years at this point. I would challenge anybody to go back through those interviews and see how much did they read from the book versus how much I read from the book during the discussion. I put five dollars on that. No, one too. you did. You did. I put five dollars. You, you said you did. didn't have anything else to say. No. Okay. I was agreeing with you. You did read a lot from the book. But I cherry picked. That was the metaphor that she used. I am in Washington State, and I do love cherries. But I cherry picked. <laughs> okay. Right on. So we've been again talking okay. laughter, the inappropriate laughter. We talk about that all the time because certainly nothing has been funny when you accuse a black person of cherry picking. Sounds like I might get arrested for stealing produce or something. Uh, we have been oh, talking with uh, no. Gail Lukasik uh, about her book, yeah. White Like Her. Uh, it, I said from the beginning, you will learn a lot about what it means to be white. Whew. Absolutely. Much obliged for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening and uh, dialing in. I will make sure to send you the link uh, so that you can play it back. Listen. Uh, yeah. Maybe even change some of your opinions once you uh, have some time and distance from the broadcast. Uh, much obliged for sharing your time and insight, Miss Lukasik. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, white guests only, even though when she was speaking with the victim in New Jersey, she said that she now identifies as mixed race. Uh, she's written that as well. That's online. You can check that out yourself. I think I shared that report. came out maybe, I think, last month where she said that. But the question I asked at the beginning was function. She has functioned as someone classified as a white woman. I suspect that is most likely Still the case. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Reading more important than watching television. Uh, I can't say it enough. I should double check. We had two different uh, locations. Antioch, Chicago. That was the other one. I'll double check that and see if it's in here. If I can find a quick one from uh, James Lowen. Uh, Sundown Towns. I'll read. If not, it has Antioch, California. Is in here uh, a couple times. I don't see Antioch, Chicago, but I'll double check uh, once we go through. But James Lowen, Sundown Towns, it's in the archives. You can go back uh, and hear, as is Henrietta Lowry. <laughs> what plugs for the book club? Uh, so, Sundown Town, James Lowen in the archives. Uh, Harriet Jacobs, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl in the archives. Uh, Vincent Woodard, The Delectable Negro. Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture in the Archives. Ugh. Reading is more important than watching television. Just reading those three books right there, whew, you will learn a lot about the system of white supremacy racism. Cowbell uh, aplenty. Uh, we'll take a quick break and then see if folks have any thoughts uh, on what they heard from Ms. Lukasik uh, before we uh, wrap things up. Whew. Context of white supremacy. White guests only. Say <laughs> that like 50 times. White guests only. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in the air and all like that, and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focused, the white supremacists made a blueprint 
and put it in action, and that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. White guests only. I've been saying that it's been a little over a year. Man, I am so thankful. Now, we did just have Ron Lacks on the program last week, and I thought that was super important uh, in a different way, but super underline, highlight, boldface print, important. Mr. Ron Lacks last week talking about his grandmother, Henrietta Lacks. And I said from the beginning, when we instituted the white guests only policy, I said we will have non-white guests on from time to time. I think that's important, but the focus should be talking to white people. That is the problem. That's where we need to make improvements, questioning white people, studying what does it mean to be white. I might even add, like we talk sometimes or we have over the years about how do you uh, nourish, build courage, confronting the enemy. That, I think, is one way questioning using words questions frequently to reveal truth when conversing with someone classified as white I think that can be one way of practicing attempted counter racism and building some courage I also want to make sure that I get on the record like I knew Miss Lukasik was going to be like on the tacky side from the very beginning I thought she was going to like walk off at certain points like I knew I had to be very meticulous Floyd Mayweather Jr. if you will very meticulous couldn't be reckless 
uh, because I felt she would have stormed off when she left. She actually was beyond the two hour mark. Uh, so we got a little bit of extra, but I think she could have stormed off at like an hour, 30 minutes, wherever I knew she was going to be that way. She requested one. Uh, I was not feeling well. I said this some time back and took mental health days. I didn't check my email and everything. And I missed a correspondence with her. So that's why we delayed. We were supposed to do this program last Tuesday, the 9th, I believe. Um, but I missed the correspondence. So we delayed it a week. That's why it's today. Anywho. Um, but she requested that I send her questions in advance. Generally, I never do this. Like I think in we've done over 2000 programs on the cows. We've easily had a thousand guests easily over the years. I can count on like, I'm not sure I would need two hands. And generally it's for non-white guests where I will, you know, share questions. But I mean, we're talking like less than 10% of the time that we have a guest on the program, probably less than 5% of the time, easily other time that we have a guest on the program, they get questions in advance. I made an effort to send her a lot of the softball questions and one at the time I had read about half the book. So there was a lot of content that was yet to come that I did highlight and include, but I made sure like, I'm not going to give her all of my questions. I don't even do this normally. I sent her the questions. And one of the questions was how did, cause she talks about her white family members in Ohio being insular and tribal. Those are the exact words that she uses in the text. And she writes back and she said, I never said anything about them being insular and tribal. And I said, Oh boy, <laughs> here we go. Like, and this has happened like over the many years, if we, uh, if we make it to February, 2022, which is not guaranteed, even making it to December is not guaranteed. End of November is not guaranteed. Uh, into this program is not guaranteed. Um, but I said, man, um, I knew she was going to misbehave in this manner when she comes on the program. We've had so many white guests. They will write a book about racism, white supremacy, and then come on and you ask them a question about something that they wrote in the book. And it's like, what? I never said that. That's not true. And you go and read it to him exactly. Oh, well, I don't, I don't remember that or some other. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, and to have that repeatedly, you said your father was a racist in the book. Like it shouldn't be all this hemming and hawing and wait a minute. And what page is that on? And wait a minute. I mean, come on. That's what you, a jigaboo coon spade. Remember all that? No name, no name calling. But like, yeah, I mean that, that sort of thing, that sort of conduct, you can pinpoint that right there. When I talk about white people being insincere about replacing white supremacy with justice, there is zero. And I mean, zero. You can't even what well, Mr. Fuller said, stand by your work. You wrote this book. You go out and talk about it all the time. You should be accustomed to this by now. Even if you weren't asking uh, questions all the time, you wrote this, you have an editor and you took years putting this book together. So you remember what you said. You're talking about your father. You don't remember this. All of that obfuscating, pussyfooting, can't be defensive, can't even answer the question. Are you complicit in the system of white supremacy if you're classified as white? 
How is it that you have access to white power, but you're not complicit in the system of racism, white supremacy, and then get an attitude about being asked that question. Twisting. I'm being twisted, taking my words, all of that. Just follow logic. No name calling as well. Uh, anything else? I want to make sure that I get. I just, it's so common. Uh, I could easily see, I think, with some guests, when I paused to jump from her book to read that segment from Vincent Woodard. I think that's so important because it is, that is an institutionalized aspect of white supremacy racism, meaning the, the default is if we talk about slavery, maybe we talk about sexual abuse. And if we do, it was exclusively black females. Yes, they were sexually abused, but you're not even getting half the story. They were not just abused by white men, uh, white children, white women, black males, black children. Like you're not even getting half of the details. If we're just going to do this in a strictly black females were the victims of sex. And then to add the slant in uh, that black females had it worse during slavery because they were raped and black men didn't know anything about like, come on. And then it's from a non-white person. I pointed that out consistently uh, where generally it will be from a deceased non-white person. Although she did reference Kenya Berry as well. I am of the opinion uh, the whole passing is a genre of academic studies. Like you can easily go online and find 10 books, movies, a uh, hundred theses, uh, anything you want uh, to read about passing. Like it is super well studied because as I said, white people have been so uh, neurotic uh, about whom is accepted as a white person. Uh, and the notion that some nigra in the woodpile, some non-white person could sneak through there. Tons of them, even uh, I think Paradise Island, I believe the the great Harry Belafonte cowbell uh, is in Paradise Island, which is about passing there. It's a white person uh, who has some sort of non-white parents. It's set in the Caribbean. Um, came out, I believe, in like the 1970s. She was even familiar with the human stain. Like it's time you you could I think if you devoted an entire week and you had Netflix, Hulu, any other, you know, access to streaming services you need, uh, I don't think you would have enough time to view all of the movies that are about passing, especially if you include all types of so-called passing where sometimes it'll be a white person who's pretending to be a non-white person like then like psh, cancel Christmas like you would need you know years uh, to if you wanted to watch or read all of that nonsense a lot of it racial classification confusion I guess that'll be the last thing I say before I hush let folks share their thoughts mixed race there's no such thing as mixed race I included racial classification confusion in the title of the segment, I believe it with the hashtag as well in the promotions, there is no such thing as mixed race. There's no such thing biologically as white, black, all the way talking about that before. It's just going to be arbitrary. Whatever the most powerful white people, the flagger, Naomi Drake, whatever they decide, that's what it will be. All of it is made up. There's only one race. That is the white race. That confusion is very common. Black race, mixed race, and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, 
there's one race and there's only one reason to belong to a race that is to practice white supremacy racism and even the notion of so-called mixed race it just it reifies the notion that there is a so-called white race as though there is a pure white race and a pure black race all of that is nonsense and hogwash to the fullest and it just helps promote confusion about white supremacy racism I'll hush folks who dialed in if you had thoughts on what you heard from Gail Lukasik uh, line should be open Hi, Gus. Can you can you hear me? Our caller in the great Commonwealth of VA. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm just chuckling. Of of course, brilliant um, handling of the guest as always. Um, I think it was interesting. It seems like she clearly wants to be white, and and she called herself, you know, a member of the the white race. She classified herself as as white early on when she first came on. Um, she talked about her white privilege and then, you know, you explained that as white power. And I think part of her way of expressing her white privilege and power is to be oppositional to, um, you know, the views that were expressed. And she said that, you know, in her book tour, she had mostly dealt with a white audience. So I guess this was a new experience for her to actually have people kind of scrutinize her text in a different kind of way. So um, it was just interesting the way she uh you know, came across, but you know, she she made her choice, and her mother made her choice, and you know, she's she's living as a white woman, even though she's trying to uh, say she's mixed race. She's happy to live as a white person, and part of that is to be defensive and um, to to then act, you know, sad and and you know, on the verge of tears, and you know, um, saying that she doesn't know where the conversation is going and and what the agenda is and all that interesting stuff that she said you know, towards the end there, and then she was tired and she, you know, needed to get off the phone. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it goes. That That is what it means to be white. But good job, as always. Much obliged what it means to be white. Um, I totally agree. Like, even in my opinion, the book itself, and you heard some of it, like when we were talking about what does it mean to be white? Do you have to be complicit in practicing racism? And she veered to, you know, my book, I talk about alcoholism in my family. And it was so tough and abusive. And my mom was going to leave my dad and all the white victimhood. Like that's so standard. We're talking about white supremacy, racism as a total world system. And even <clears throat> when the definition that I was given at the beginning of the program, it's just like, wait a minute. Are you saying that if you're classified as white, you're about suppressing and mistreating non-white people? Like she did. That's not even, you know what the definition says, uh, but just following logic. What does it mean to be white? But yeah, defensive, tired, got to get out of here and I think that's true too not being accustomed to she said like she wrote in the book and she said talking to us <clears throat> that she was talking to mostly white audience might have been uh, exclusively white audiences a uh, number of times even though I did see one segment at least on uh, uh, YouTube 
uh, where she had a black female, it looked like to me, or at least a non-white female uh, who was doing some sort of interview about the book. But it did uh, seem like most of the segments, white people, white audiences, you know, talking about the book. So, yeah, she might not be. I think most people are not accustomed to non-white people having some suspicion and questioning things that they say. But probably especially not her like they probably other people probably just focus in on oh wow it's a love story and you connecting with your mom and loss and you know all the rest of it uh let's see other folks <clears throat> if you have commentary what you heard from uh miss lukasik feel free Gus, can i be heard yes sir this is our caller in ohio now one, I'm giving myself a pat on the back again. People have had the audacity to tell me, Gus, your memory is terrible. I do not have a photographic memory, but it is not terrible, at least not yet. Uh, I'm so glad that we read James Lowen's Sundown Towns and that he mentioned Parma, Ohio, specifically repeatedly in the text, 50 black people in a town with over 100,000 population total and you don't know if this man as someone who uh, fellow resident in the Buckeye State did what did you what did you think about her responses to to her her region and their number of Negras allowed well um, you know I grew up grew up in Cleveland during a similar time period and uh, I only read an excerpt from the book so when she said that she grew up in Parma, that was like a, use a metaphor, big red flag. I mean, Parma's like Forsyth, Georgia, in the middle of Cleveland. And for her to minimize that, you know, they always characterize this as a working class neighborhood. Parma was notorious. And even other white people ridiculed it. And I think she was being deceptive. I mean, she probably could, could have written a whole book just on her experiences in Parma during the 1950s and 60s. So for me, for her not to discuss that or talk about it in these sort of vague terms. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, her her father, she admits is a racist. She grows up in a sundown town, which is notorious. It wasn't hidden. I think she's just being deceptive and typical for a person classified as white. She did all these years of research. That was one I forgot to ask. I was going to ask her, like, how much, one, the researchers, because she got lots of help in the acknowledgement. She lists this big <clears throat> number of shout outs for the uh, researchers and genealogists who helped her, you know, find all this valuable information about her ancestors. I uh, wanted to know how many of them were white. Uh, and then because <clears throat> these folks normally charge quite a bit of money, like how much money did she spend? How much time did they volunteer? Because it seemed like a lot of time and energy like that would be an exercise of white power right there uh, because she traveled uh, it seems she's in Illinois <clears throat> Kyle Rittenhouse uh, she traveled to Louisiana uh, to do research for some of this and other parts of the world to you know meet people and all that I mean just you know 
white power uh, to have the time and resources to just like and even enlist her husband. Uh, he was uh, they had it so codified that her husband had said he would do like an hour a day uh, or two hours a day or so of his time. And he would go through and help find records. And he was super helpful. He got into I mean, just to have that sort of uh, support. And he also to have the white power that, yeah, I can use my uh, white intelligence, uh, donate, you know, 60 minutes or 90 minutes, 120 minutes of my time daily to your project. But no more than that. Very clear. Uh, other folks, uh, <clears throat> thoughts, observations from her, uh, Gail Lukasik, her participation this evening. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to guest, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, Gus, I wanted to um, ask really quick. Uh, did did uh, did you get into asking about the racist jokes or anything like that? She gave a number of them uh, throughout the program. Uh, she started off at the beginning with uh, <clears throat> one of the white women researchers, I guess, when she was going through the census records. I was telling her about nigger babies. Uh, this is some sort of candy. That was one that I took as a racist joke. She used the phrase nigger in the woodpile. That was another one. She said uh, she talked about the incident after I guess she had shared that she had these non-white ancestors. Um, one of her white friends, so-called. Uh, so Miss Lukasik said she had been working hard, cracking the whip. The white friend said, uh, oh, you should be used to that like knowing that she had black ancestors type thing. Uh, and I, we talked about that being racist jokes right there. So, uh, I think she even had some others, but those were, uh, those were the flagrant ones. Uh, and then we talked about her dad calling black people, Jigaboo and coon spade, all that. I think that those would qualify as racist jokes too. Um, yeah, no, it claimed that we talked about racist jokes explicitly as well, but those are some of the specific ones probably could have asked her for some others, but we had at least, we had at least two or three and the nigger babies. One was not in the book. So we got at least like two or three and one that was not in the book. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and, and I just wanted to add on a point of, I, I thought that was a, a great display of, um, confidence in questioning, um, people who are classified as white. Well, I know she said the term mixed race, but I, I do think that that's an, another good example of um, uh, asking logical questions to uh, white people as it relates to the system of white supremacy. And I did notice the uh, the the pattern of. I guess I'm thinking of the word projecting that may be a, a metaphor or um, her feeling discomfort or uncomfortable and not used to speaking to uh, uh, black people or a black person. And it seems like, well, uh, someone, I guess, earlier mentioned that she mainly uh, spoke with mostly white people, I guess. And, uh, you know, for a black person to have like that kind of preparation and you know knowledge on and understanding on the system, 
she's like, okay, you know, I got the, you know, uh, I don't know what the agenda is, and it's always got to be some kind of agenda, and you're just asking just logical questions. Uh, and the point on how that does seem to be a cliche, I guess I'll use that word, uh, meaning like something that's standard when it comes to, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the white man, right? The, the white man, you know, he's the one that's mainly the racist and, you know, almost like a white woman can be overtly racist, but they do tend to have that more um, deceitful style of being racist, like giving that appearance that, oh, I can relate to you, to you black people. And there are a lot of white female teachers, like a lot of white women teachers. And, you know, I just gave an example of how, you know, a white woman down here pretty much put her hands on a, a black female child and she went to the guidance counselor and got her arrested, Carolyn Lee. So, uh, and that'll be all I have to uh, say. And thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, sir. <clears throat> I think I just, uh, stand by your work. I'll say that again. Quote Mr. Fuller twice. Stand by your work. Like when we have guests on the program, I read their material. As a metaphor, I do my homework. <clears throat> uh, if it's a book, I read the whole thing. Check the footnotes, you know, as I'm going, have my highlighter and, you know, do it to it. Um, if it's a film, whatever it's going to be, uh, I do my diligence. And, you know, we've been here, as I said, if we, you know, are here, live through the night, make it to fe uh, February, uh, 13 years. I think that's been displayed for more than a decade. Man, to have white, really white and non-white guests, because we've had lots of, of both. That's why it's white guests only. Uh, but to have so many people say that, like, you uh, cherry-picked or, you know, you, you didn't even understand or the, the, the book, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. <laughs> like, uh, let's check out, because I mean, so many of the people who host uh, programs and what have you, where they talk to authors they don't even read the book, particularly people, you know, that are on uh, more what they call mainstream broadcast. They have like a research department and what have you. They will go through and give them uh, cliff notes and, you know, all the rest of it uh, so that they'll just ask whatever questions and, and whatever pinpoints. Like I'm sure there are times if they speak to a lot of authors, I'm sure there might be a book from time to time that piques their interest. And they're like, oh, I'll actually read this one, what have you. But a lot of those folks don't even read the book. To much less have someone who actually read the book and then is reading snippets from the book. And it's still just that total, the same dismissal that she had of the black male at the end of the book. Uh, she's having her moment in New Orleans and some black dude, some jigaboo coon comes through and, hey, hey, I don't, I don't want to be on camera, man. The police, you know, I got warrants and things which might be totally true. Facial recognition and all the rest of it. New Orleans consent decree long time that's not oh man that's 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 for real that's a legit concern like ah, having a moment thinking about my mom passing jigaboo comes through again i didn't say that she said that i just said like the tone if you're just going to describe him as some crazy black dude uh who walked through and messed up your moment where you couldn't even think straight like that's 
that is about the same tone. And then she got really spicy and well, I won't say spicy, but she got really defensive uh, about that. I mean, does it sound, you know, human humanizing? Does it sound sympathetic uh, to this black male situation? Does this even sound like a reasonable request that he made to not be filmed? Just some crazy black guy in New Orleans. Lots of those down there. Crazy black dude. Looter. Potential mugger. Out on the street corner. Um, but yeah, and I, I just think the, uh, the, the pattern in terms of her uh, conduct of shifting and, and being defensive. Like, I think we've seen that uh, a number of times, unfortunately, or I guess hopefully people can see that pattern, but I think we've seen that a number of times from many, many white guests. And then even feeding into that, it's white men that are the problem and white women like me, we, you know, we're victims too. You know, they beat us up and are abusive. We got abusive husbands and abusive fathers. You know, those no count white men, you know, what are we going to do with them? That's, you know, very, very common in the rhetoric and how we think about all of this. Can't have a system of racism, white supremacy without racist man, racist woman, racist child. And I can't say enough, like uh, with so-called passing, if you are accepted as white, there are requirements just following logic if you are accepted as that same thing we talked about the caller who asked about the racist jokes that was one component that we talked about those racist jokes the white person who is sharing the joke they assume if you are classified as white you are racist you will agree with these jokes or at minimum you're not going to find this you know something that is wrong should be prohibited or stopped that's just the assumption she I couldn't even get the question out she agreed so quickly and that this is one of the few times white people are honest about racism. No defensiveness when it's uh, nigger joke time. Time to talk about jigaboos and spades and coons and all that. I just feel like that, I mean, that's pretty much a racist joke right there. Like sitting around and seeing a black person and going, oh, we got jigaboo, whatever, you know, Johnson. Like that's a racist joke right there. Anywho, um, <clears throat> any other important points? I want to make sure that I got. Uh, I. I do not have a staff. I don't have researchers, uh, folks who, you know, go to the library and dig up resources and print it out and get it for me. Although we have had lots of folks who have assisted in faxing. We had tons of folks <clears throat> who had faxed documents to Dr. Welsing uh, over the years uh, and others. So we have had some help, but I mean, that is nothing near like having a staff and all the help that uh, Gail Lukasik had in writing her book and researching her family. If ignorant old Gus has read enough about sundown towns that just an inkling, I've never been to Parma, Ohio, but just an inkling like, oh, yeah, that is for sure. And then you did all this research. You're citing all these authors and people who've written books about passing and people who've written books about the history of Louisiana and all these other resources you can't James Lowen. This is a white man, a white best-selling author. Like, and she's a white author. That's why I thought that was important to include as well. She is a fictional author. Uh, so this is someone who generally is not writing in a manner to reveal truth. I thought that was important. Now you're coming to write about racism, white supremacy. 
I would think that that might transfer where you're also writing in a way that is not really about revealing truth. Maybe even you're someone with fiction, you don't have to tell the truth that might transfer with this project as well. Anyway, at minimum, as a writer, you are skilled with words. That's something that I think is important as well about racism, white supremacy and probably was on display. Like I think just her being uh, adroit with word usage. Uh, that's why I tried to read passages. That was one way that I said, I'm going to, you know, make sure that I watch my tone so she doesn't come at me early with your, uh, you know, an angry, no count black male militant with an agenda. Crazy like that guy in New Orleans uh, was to just read. Bam. So then it's it's everything is pitched off of what you said in the text, what you said in the text. And I'm not even going to pitch it um, without going exactly to the portion in the text. I think I did that with racist just because she said it so bluntly in the book. I didn't think that there would be pushback because she had called them a racist. She called them a bigot. Like, you know, it was said repeat. I didn't think, you know, there would be a standard point. She went into detail. Like I said, Jigaboo, Spade, Coon, all the rest of it. It's like, how can there be a whole lot of, you know, Hey, 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 what do you mean? What did I say? Racist that, but she, even though it was no problem, especially when I got the e-crowd, especially if I got the electronic, version that is one major like that might even be two major like <clears throat> benefits of having e-copies of books as opposed to paper copies like oh I wish a white person would get sassy and act like they didn't write something in a book when you got an e-copy like oof, we can solve this in like seconds as fast as my fingers can move across the keyboard like Bow, exact page, exact chapter. This is what you said. Which again, shouldn't be happening. Like I'm an author. I've been paid to write reports and all kinds of things. Like generally, I remember what I said. <laughs> like there are very few times, even for things that I wrote like years ago, there are very few times where someone will mention something that I wrote or something that I said on a program. If I went into great detail about it, you spend years writing books, generally speaking to not remember like big, important part, which you saying your father was a racist and why and you don't remember that. Like Jesus, white Jesus, white Jesus. Why again, what does it mean to be white? All that defensiveness and obfuscating can't even be honest much less be sincere about replacing white supremacy with justice and she even said that in the book she had concerns about black people thinking that she was disingenuous she certainly did not do anything to improve that with her performance on the program this evening uh, did anybody else have commentary anything else they wanted to get in We'll assume folks are satisfied. White guests only. I guess I should thank the listener who sent me the report. I think like the Wall Street Journal did a report. Like she's very popular. Like uh, when she when she uh, said, "Well, I'm not doing the ninth date because I didn't hear back from you in time." Like I get lots of requests and things. Like she is very popular. She has lots of interviews. The BBC and. Uh, the Today Show, like with Megan Kelly, like they did a really long segment. They even had some of her uh, non-white uh, 
ancestors that she found, I guess, during the process of, the, of all of this family members that she didn't know about. So called, they had some of them come on the program. Like they did a really like 15 minute segment or so uh, on the today show. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, very popular. I, I suspect this will probably be one of the few times that she got some like serious uh, questioning uh, about the text uh, and her views on white supremacy, racism. Anyway, book club is Thursday. Shauna Swan count down uh, the fertility problem for individuals classified as white Welsing moment for sure. I'm so glad we had that segment with Dr. Welsing uh, at the beginning talking about folks going to Ohio, uh, the offspring of white men and non-white females and they could hang out and, and pass or have offspring who could be accepted as white. Grandcester. Uh, with that, much obliged to the folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, the cows listen to supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal is also linked along with uh, PayPal, uh, excuse me, cash app. Venmo, PayPal is linked to uh, all right at the top right corner. The cash app is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Much obliged for all the folks who have kept us on the air for 12 plus years. Hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, with that said, sobriety would be best. She does have a lot about her uh, father being an alcoholic, as she stated on the program. He was a World War II veteran, uh, had PTSD, even though it wasn't diagnosed at that time, uh, and did lots of alcohol consumption uh, to so-called self-medicate. Like, man, that does not help at all. Sobriety would be best. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're going to be out and about, uh, I would be alert about things that are happening around you. Uh, if there is someone being rowdy and hostile, exit. Uh, you should be thinking that this person could be armed. Uh, in fact, they may have an entire armed militia with them. Uh, if you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die. Exit. Call enforcement officers or do what you need to do as you vacate the area. Uh, all of that said, if you're driving, you're sober, buckled, and you are not on the cell phone, uh, just doing the small things that we can uh, to try to stay as safe as possible under super dangerous conditions from race soldiers, badge or no. Kyle Rittenhouse trial is, uh, you know, I think the jury is deliberating, as they say. Uh, that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim
Shut my up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. 